In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. Those are the words of an English professor, David Foster Wallace, that he gave in 2005 at a commencement address in Kenyon College in Ohio. He spoke as a prize-winning writer and essayist. He made it clear in his commencement words that he was irreligious, yet Foster Wallace's words, as someone who was not religious, make clear what is unavoidable, and he wanted to make it clear to those students as they graduated, namely, that in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice that you get is what you will worship. We are indeed hardwired for worship. The question then this morning is not whether you are a worshiper, whether you are a religious person or you're not a religious person, but what will you worship? Because we all worship something. Maybe you worship more than one thing. But what do you worship? Moreover, not only are people worshipers, but cultures which are made up of people worship too. And they create idols for people to worship in their culture. So every culture, whether ancient or modern, sets up idols in the marketplace or in the medicine man or woman's hut. And then they ask you to bow down to those idols or to sacrifice to them. Now, we might see idols more easily in an animistic culture where we can see idols of wood and stone than we can see them in our own um, moralistic, materialistic culture. But the idols of our culture that we worship are as numerous as the steeples in the South and the Starbucks, too. They're everywhere. Now, what's the point? We're just underlining this reality, friends, that everybody in here is a worshiper. Culture, religious or not, even creates things for people to worship. So every moment of the day, our hearts and our minds are all being evangelized. They're all being catechized to do what we are made to do, and that is to worship. Why? Because in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. David Foster Wallace. There's no such thing as not worshiping. We're all being evangelized and catechized to worship something, which is what we were made to do. Here's just an, here's a cultural example. Terms like moralistic or therapeutic describe some of the main cultural idols that culture pressures us to worship in our moment in the United States. And these terms of moralistic and therapeutic are not labels used to slant a discussion or to kind of warn against syncretism in in, in a professional's office, but they are the descriptive categories used by studied philosophers and sociologists who are simply attempting to describe the ethos and idols of current culture in America. So the Apostle Paul was aware of the cultural idols of his day when he quoted philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts. 
As early as 1966, Philip Reef was already writing of the wave he saw coming regarding the unquestioned moral authority culture was giving to what he called the therapeutics. So in 1966, he wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And 40 years later, sociologists named Christian Smith and Melinda Denton describe moralistic and therapeutic categories no longer as a wave that Philip Reeve saw coming, but now as the mainstream lens through which we view ourselves and God, whatever we call him or her. So given that we live in a culture worshiping these kinds of idols, whether we know it or not, we're probably we instinctively think of ourselves and God, even the atonement through a moralistic and therapeutic lens. For one example, one book that, that seems to be highly recommended, a Christian counseling book, looks at the atonement and gives this advice. Quote, Jesus' life on earth says, I chose to sacrifice my body so that you can pay compassionate attention to yours. That's the length to which I go to show you love. Now, that kind of reading of the atonement is similar to a sermon I was aware of about 10 years ago in which someone preached a series through the agony of Christ in Gethsemane in order to help hearers learn how to manage stress in their lives. I hope that you can hear the demeaning nature of those kinds of statements to the body and humanity of Jesus and the slander against his unique agony as our propitiating substitute. But even if not, even if you still demure, I just want you to note how commonplace it is instinctively to look at Christ and the atonement through what philosophers have now dubbed a moralistic and therapeutic lens. Well, the main point remains. That worship is what we were created to do and it shows up in our lives and our churches and our culture. And we have two main options for worship. Either we will worship the true and living God as he's revealed himself in the work of creation, the writings of scripture and the work of his son, or we will worship created things, ourselves, nature or products of our own hands. There is no third option. We will either worship the uncreated God or we will exchange the glory of the immortal God and serve created things rather than the uncreated creator. One writer put it this way back in 2003. It's a quote that I have used and Brian has used from day one at Emmanuel. It's about worship is simply about value. And the simplest definition I can give is that worship is our response to what we value most. That's why worship is that thing that we all do. It's what we're all about on any given day. Worship is about saying this person, this thing, this experience, this whatever is what matters most to me. It's the thing of highest value in my life. That thing may be a relationship. It might be a dream. It might be a position. Whatever it is that matters most to you, a status, something that you own, a job, some kind of pleasure, whatever name you put on it is what you've concluded in your heart is of what's worth most to you. And whatever's worth most to you, you guessed it, is exactly what you worship. 
So worship, in essence, is, is about declaring what we value most. And as a result, worship fuels our actions. It becomes the driving force in everything that we do. We're not just talking about the religious crowd or the Christian, the churchgoer here this morning. We're talking about everybody on planet Earth is driven by worship. A multitude of souls every day proclaiming with every breath what's worthy of their affections, their attention, their allegiance, proclaiming with every step what it is they worship. Some of us attend church professing to worship the living God. Others who rarely darken a church door say worship isn't a part of their lives because they're not religious. But everybody has an altar and every altar has a throne. So how do you know where and what you worship? It's easy. Simply follow the trail of your time, your affections, your energy, and your money, and your emotions, and your allegiance. At the end of that trail, you will find a throne. And whatever or whoever sits on that throne is of highest value to you. And on that throne is what you worship. Not many of us walk around saying, I worship my stuff. I worship my job. I worship pleasure. We may say that we value this thing or that thing more. We don't even say, I worship me. But the trail doesn't lie. The volume of our actions and speaks louder than our words. So what are you worshiping this morning? Last week, we began our annual New Year series on the disciplines of grace, emphasis, means of grace at Emmanuel by speaking of our love for the unseen Christ from 1 Peter 1. The only person that lies at the center of every true Christian's affections is Jesus. Not Jesus as we conceive him to be, but Jesus as he's revealed himself to be as the divine savior, the son of man and son of God, the buried, risen, reigning prophet, priest and king of whom God said, you don't come to me except through him. So at the center of our worship and our lives is Jesus, our redeemer. And when you hear the roar of redemption song in Exodus 15, a roar that's taken to a deafening level by the worship of heaven using the same words from that song in Revelation 4 and 5, we learn that true worship is always about the redemption offered by the redeemed to the redeemer, a redeemer who was sent by the father and anointed by the spirit. So biblical worship is Trinitarian. It's centered on the Redeemer and his work. And so Christians have sung ever since the hymn writer first wrote the words and before, thus ere by faith I saw the stream, your flowing wound supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And when you get to heaven in Revelation 4 or 5, it will still be the theme forever. So last week, Jesus revealed in his word is the center of our worship, our lives. But now here's the question for this week. We all worship. Christ is the only true object of our worship. But now here it is. Does God care how we worship? I know that God cares about many things. He cares for me. He cares about my daily bread. He cares for my children. He cares for my health. But does God care how we worship? Does how we worship matter to God or so long as we are doing it, 
then we, we, I don't mean this, but we, we get a participation trophy. God's just glad to see us trying. Our sincerity and devotion more important. Is that what matters? That's the kind of question we often asked some 18 years ago, and it's good to ask it again. And it all hinges on one main thing. What does the Bible say? I hope this kind of question and message this morning in a word helps. I hope it helps you think about your life in every area before God, and I hope it helps you think about your relationship to a local church. I pray that it helps when we ask a question, does God care how I worship? So as we sail into January, we're emphasizing God's word this morning, its power and authority. And as we hear God's word this morning, here's our particular application. I want us to hear how God's word governs our lives, our all of life worship and how God's word governs our gathered worship, our all of life worship and our life together worship. And as we do, I hope you're encouraged to give yourself to reading God's word, to know God through his word, because there's a promise. There's an enticement. There's a reward put out there for you in Psalm one of which we sang that lovers of the Lord's law are supremely blessed. God is after your happinesses when he tells you to read the word, because when you read the word, you stare into the heart, mind and soul of God. The universe is massive. And if God wanted to win in a cosmic game of hide and seek, he could win. But God has made himself known to us in his world. He's made himself known to us in his word. And in these last days, he's made himself known to us supremely in Jesus, his final word. So he governs and sustains and guides and preserves through his word. He reveals through his word. You will not know God as much as you need to, as clearly as you need to, unless you read your Bible, every word of the Bible. God doesn't waste words. Your speech teacher says, don't say that. Your English teacher says, cut that sentence. God doesn't need one word removed and every word is there because it gives life to those who hear it. Every word. And if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you again this morning, you, you still worship something even if you're not religious. Something is still an authority in your life. Do you know what it is? Can it forgive you? Can it give you purpose? Can it make you love others as you want to? Can it? What's your authority in your life? What are you worshiping? Well, the rest of our time, I want to think about, does God care how we worship? And from day one, we've always emphasized that question and a biblical response to it. So here we go. First Answer is really short. Does God care how we worship? And the answer rhymes with chess. It's yes. How do we know? In 1 Timothy, which we we thought about quietly as we opened our service, Paul writes to a pastor encouraging him about how we would say about how to revitalize Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy 3, which we read in our opening meditation, it's in the inside of your order of worship, Paul explains that he's writing these things to Timothy so that they might know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul wants to make sure the church at Ephesus, a church that has a rich doctrinal history, read the book of Ephesians, that that church keeps thinking about how one ought to behave and conduct oneself as the ecclesia of the living God, the church of the living God. 
To put it simply, how we worship as a local church matters. So Paul covers the gospel and its beliefs and behaviors contrary to it in chapter 1. And chapter 2, he lays out the importance of prayer for nations and rulers. He lays out how we should pray and who we should pray. He lays out who should preach, that the roles given to men in the congregation and that only qualified men in 1 Timothy 3, the pastor's duties in 1 Timothy 4, how to care for widows in 1 Timothy 5. Do you see? He's writing to a relatively new pastor of an established church because Paul's concerned about one thing. What is it? 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, so that you might know how you ought to order yourselves as God's house. Does God care how we worship? Yes. God's word governs every part of church life from the gospel and the ethical entailments thereof to how we pray to the male nature of the preaching office, to how pastors ought to conduct themselves, to how the church cares for shut-ins and widows. Yes, yes, yes. Here's a whole letter in the Bible because Paul wants us to know that how we order ourselves as the house of God right down to church government, deacons and elders matters to God. And one of the first book-length series that we did as a congregation was an expositional series through 1 Timothy. Why? Because how we order ourselves as a church matters. But second, and much longer, I want us to think about the question, does God care how we worship by going to the Old Testament and then back to 1 Timothy? So would you turn to the book of Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is the last of five books that set the foundation for the rest of the Bible story. And this book contains a series of messages delivered by a prophet named Moses. And some later editor had to put some of this together because it's it's written after he dies. Parts of it. Here are Moses's messages and words to God's redeemed people. And one of his sermonic points, not the only one, but one of his sermonic points is this, that God's gracious redemption leads to joyful responsibilities. So in Deuteronomy 5, you have the second time in the Bible that God puts before his redeemed people the Ten Commandments. And the entire Ten Commandments is not keep these and I will love you. The context is because I already love you, respond to grace like this. The context of the Ten Commandments and Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 is always and first God's redeeming love. So Deuteronomy 5, 6. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. So God's redeeming, sovereign, initiating love demands our exclusive love to him. My gracious redemption of you leads to certain covenant obligations from you. The Ten Commandments are, in a sense, to be our wedding vows back to God who says, will you marry me? I want you to be mine. More than Ten Commandments themselves, particularly the first four, are all about worship. You will have no other gods to worship before me, Deuteronomy 5, 7. You will not make any image of me to bow down and worship me, Deuteronomy 5, 8. You will not misuse my name, which isn't only referring to a swear, but it means you don't attach God's name to purposes and practices and behaviors and beliefs that you ought not. And you shall remember the Sabbath day And keep it holy. Do you see? The Ten Commandments are all about our worshipful response to a God who redeemed us. Who owns us. 
Does God care how we worship? 1 Timothy 3, the Ten Commandments are all about showing us that God not only cares that we worship, but how we worship and how we worship matters as a church and in all of life. 1 Timothy 3 and Deuteronomy 5. And we're going to approach now and work up to Deuteronomy 12. And as we work up to Deuteronomy 12, Moses is reminding God's people of two big realities in the context of the redemption. That God's word now is going to govern your worship in every part of your life. He governed your life and, and your all of life worship. And now God's word is to going to govern your life as you gather as my people to worship. The context of redemption. Now my word will govern your all of life worship. Now my word will govern your gathered worship as you meet together. So in Deuteronomy 10 and 11, we see how God's word governs in these chapters our all of life worship. So would you look at Deuteronomy 10, 11 and 12 or If you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can listen. But I want you to hear the context that God expects his people as they enter into the promised land. Here's the context. Here's why I know this is all of life worship. Verse 11. And the Lord said to me, arise, go to your journey at the head of the people so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to give to them. And now, here's what he requires. Now, Israel, verse 12, what does the Lord your God require of you? And now he lists five things to to characterize their life in the land. I require that you fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for good. Three observations. One, notice these five affections and actions are to characterize their daily living as they enter the land. Beloved, reflect later today or this week on each phrase and what it would mean for your life. Two, notice how God-centered they are. Fear the Lord. Walk in his ways. Serve the Lord. Keep his commandments. Life is not about you. It's about God. Does every day life of your life show that? Three, don't miss the obvious. Notice it's God's word in these verses that's now going to govern all of their life. Here is what the Lord requires as you enter the land. My word now shapes your life. Now, in chapter 11, Moses again renews and rehearses God's gracious and powerful redemption in the life of his people. And then in verses 7 and 8, he's going to show again, reinforce that God's word is to guide all of your life worship. Deuteronomy 11, verse 7, your eyes have seen all the great work the Lord did. There's the context of redemption again. Verse 8, therefore, keep the whole command that I command. And now Moses in 10 and 11, by and large, describes how they are to relate to God as they live in the land, because that's what we read as chapter 11 concludes. Moses is showing the people how God's word governs every part of their daily living. Verse 31 of chapter 11, for you would cross over the Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God has given you. And when you possess it and when you live in that land, here's how you're to live. You shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I'm setting before you this day. So 
Does God care how we worship him in all of life? Yes. And his word governs every part of worship in every part of our life. We also learn from this passage something else. You can learn from this passage as you look at again and again that what you see is worship as our response to God's grace. Worship as our response to God's revelation and redemption. So worship as our glad hearted, obedient response to God's gracious self-disclosure to his costly redemption. Worship is the adoration of God that leads to action. What kind of action? We respond to God's self-disclosure. We respond to that with confession and repentance that redounds to praise and obedience to Him. Tim Keller several years ago defined worship as treasuring God. I ponder His worth and then do something about it. Every approach to worship has those elements. I see Him and I give Him what He's due. Now here's an application. That's why our order of worship is ordered like it is. Our order of worship begins as we come into his presence silently thinking about his word and it begins with adoration. A song of adoration. And having adored God, having been exposed in some measure to his word, to his greatness and his glory, the goal is like Job, who I heard about him, but now that I see him, I repent. Or Isaiah, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and I said, woe is me. Or Thomas, when I realized you are my Lord and my God, I said, forgive me. That adoration turns to confession for sin, for not giving him the glory due his name adoration leads to confession and then having confessed our sin we remind ourselves that the gospel is the good news about the bad news that we hear an assurance of pardon that leads to thanking god and consecration so our order of worship then not only follows god's word but it's a gospel-shaped pattern as god reveals himself and we repent and we're forgiven and we promise to thank him and obey him the gospel shapes our worship There is an old Latin phrase that I will get it wrong and I don't agree with how it was applied originally, but lexis orandi, lex orandi is lex credendi, which means that how you set up your worship as what shows what you believe about God. So you are being catechized by a liturgy, an order of worship every Sunday. And however you're being catechized better match up with the gospel because you're being taught about God and how you relate to him every Lord's Day. Lex orandi is lex credendi. How you order your worship shows what you believe and shapes what you believe. This is not only true for gather worship, of course, but for all of life worship, because Paul can say in a passage, Christians familiar with the Bible know that after 11 chapters, after after speaking of God's gracious, justifying, sanctifying, electing, uniting work in our salvation, Romans 12 opens with a therefore. I beseech you by the mercies of God to do something with your body, to present your body to God as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service better, which is your spiritual worship. Think about that. That God's word governs our worship in every part of our life. God has always demanded his people worship him in every area of life. And it's true that as you move from Old Testament worship to New Testament worship, the particulars changed here and then again. But what is consistent is that under both covenants, God demanded that all of life be lived worshipfully. 
The principles worked out so poignantly in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, so poetically in Psalm 150. And then as you read the New Testament, you hear a stunning change in the locus and heart of worship. In John 4, Jesus tells this woman at the well with her sordid moral past that the Father seeking people like her to worship him, who will worship him not in this place or that place, but in spirit and in truth. By making that announcement, Jesus is showing now the obsolescence of worship that's connected to a particular place, to a place of brick and mortar, the temple, because Jesus himself is the temple and you meet God in me. Then again, we hear in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 10 that Paul says that whatever you do, wherever you are, you're to be living your life for the glory of God because this is our spiritual worship. So what was expected in the Old Testament is now fleshed out in many ways for us in the new so that now we can see every part of life, the daily grind, is infused with tremendous significance. Waiting in car line is an act of worship. Crunching numbers, a stop at the grocery store, changing diapers, cutting meat, all of these now are acts of spiritual worship done to the glory of God. Every part of life is valuable then. Every job is significant. So whether God's people gather to meet on Sunday, when when we gather to meet on Sunday then, we are not engaging in something we have been not doing all week long. The difference is not our worship, but now we worship together. That our solo voice of worship from the week is now blended and harmonized with other voices into a symphony of praise about the redemption by the redeemed to the redeemer. So from God's word now governing our all of life worship. I want to turn now to see how God's word governs our worship together. That is that God not only cares about his glory in our individual lives and in our worship, but he cares about his glory in our corporate worship. Or to put it another way, God's word regulates our gathered worship. Look now at Deuteronomy 12. We're going to read a large part of this. Love God with your mind and your eyes and your ears as we work through this. You can even see, at least in my Bible, The heading says the Lord's chosen place of worship. Now we're transitioning to think about God's requirements for when his people gather for worship. Deuteronomy 12, verse 2. He begins by going after false places of worship. You will destroy, Deuteronomy 12, 2, all the places where the nations whom you dispossessed served or worshiped their gods on the high mountains, on the hills and every under green tree. That's where they worship their gods. You shall tear down those altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim, their gods with fires. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You don't worship any god in an image. So you, you, you destroy the gods and you destroy the places where they were worshiping. And we know in those verses, this is all about gathered worship because the summary in verse four, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. God not only cares that we worship, but he cares how we worship. You will not worship me in that way. And then after stating that point negatively, Don't worship in this way, in this place. Now, chapter 12, starting at verse 5, God now prescribes how you should worship me. 
He prescribes the place of worship in verse 5 and the content of worship in verse 6. Don't worship the Lord your God in this way, but verse 5, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And if you read chapter 12, you will see again and again, chose this place, worship there, chose this place, worship there. God prescribes the place of worship. And now verse 6, he's going to prescribe the content of our worship, the elements of our worship. And there, at the place I choose, verse 6, here's what should you should do in your worship. You bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. So, does God care how his people worship when they gather together? Yes. In Deuteronomy 12, God's word prescribes not only the place of worship, but the required elements in their worship. What is the place? The Lord your God will choose. The tabernacle, the temple. What are the required elements? He lists six. In verse uh, verse six, he lists the elements for their worship. Burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, various offerings. And if you want to know in detail, what do you mean by those offerings? Go back and read Leviticus where God goes into great detail about each one of those offerings and sacrifices that he tells you to do when you meet for worship. He cares about not only our worship, but how we worship. And he not only cares about how we worship, but the content, the elements of our worship, that God's word regulates our worship. We have the how, all your heart, all your soul. We have the place. We have the required elements there in Deuteronomy. Well, how um, how, how serious was God about these elements and place for worship? Well, look at verse 8. He repeats it. But first he warns them not to worship God simply as they see fit. You shall not, verse 8, do according to all we're doing this day, meaning everybody doing what's right in his own eyes. Verse 10. But when you go over to the Jordan to live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies so that you live in safely, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution that you present, and all your finest offerings. That, verse 13 and 14, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I commanded you. So here is God's word prescribing the place of worship. And he warns about places of false worship. He not only prescribes the place, he prescribes the elements included in their worship. And then he warns them about requiring or emphasizing things that he has not commanded them. Do not worship in a way that's right in your own eyes. Gather where I command, how I command, and only do what I command. And now hear the conclusion of the matter and Deuteronomy 12, 31 and 32. Here's the point. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. 
For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Can I make a a quick detour that that kind of thing happens today in a mainline Episcopal church in which a, a lady minister stood up and said, chant with me, abortion is a blessing. Abortion is a blessing. Abortion is a blessing. That is a direct violation of the very thing God says. They burn their sons and daughters to the fire of their gods in the name of worship. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. Listen to this. You shall not add to it and you shall not take away. Now, we read two passages together from the Old Testament in which people, perhaps well-intentioned, were put to death for doing something God did not command in the context of worship. Nadab and Abihu apparently brought something new. It was something innovative. The old King James calls it strange fire. It was strange because it was contrary to God's commands, not because it was weird and produced in some weird way, but they offered a kind of fire in a kind of way that God had forbidden. Or there's Uzzah, and no matter what his intentions, when everybody was praising God or thinking they were, his actions had violated clear commands of how God was to worship. So here, God's clear commands led to clear death that serves as a perpetual warning that sincerity is not the only thing that matters in your worship of God. God cares how we worship And he prescribes what we include and worship. And if we take away or add, we put ourselves in a kind of danger, a danger like Nadab and Abihu and like Uzzah, which means, are are you insisting on things in the gathering or in worship or in ministry that God's word does not insist or command or emphasize? It regulates our gathered worship. Here's where I want us to turn to start making some some applications for us. If you think about this, you will see that it actually brings freedom and simplicity. And can I use an overused word? Authenticity to worship. First, God's commands free God's people from whims and fads and the never ending pursuit of we must do this. They keep worship simple and free from distraction by only insisting on those things that God commands. And they help worship to be authentic. What I mean is, by carrying out these elements that God commands, you guarantee that God promises to meet with His people. And along with all of these comes a warning that we must not obsist or obsist. I, I put insist and obsess into one word. We must not insist or obsess or, 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 or command things in worship that have little warrant and no biblical command. Now, what I've just laid out for you in the previous, I don't know, 30 minutes is what Christians for centuries have called something known as the regulative principle. What is the regulative principle? It's simply trying to answer this question. What is true worship? And the answer is that in order for worship to be pleasing to God, it has to be done in the name of Christ and on the basis of his work and in keeping with the requirements of his word. 
That we are not free to worship God in any way that we choose or prefer. We worship God as he commands and desires. And in short, we may not worship God in a way not approved by his word. Our worship is to be in accordance with his word. His word regulates all of life worship and our gathered worship. That's the second half of the quote on your front of your order of worship that's meant to say that people of various denominations have recognized this in history, whether it's a Westminster Confession of Faith or whether it's Baptist from the 1600s. It arose at the time of the Reformation. With the Church of Rome, there were many smells and bells and teachings and traditions and requirements for worship. And the Reformers were not only asking what makes a church a church, but what makes a true worship service a true worship service. What does God require for true worship to happen when his people gather? What must be included for God to meet with his people in power? And upon reading passages like the Ten Commandments and reflecting on a passage like Deuteronomy 12 and 1 Timothy 3, godly saints of old came to the conclusion that God's word and God's word alone has to regulate what is or is not part of the worship of God's gathered people. Thus, here comes the principle of sola scriptura. Scripture alone determines how we worship, what's included in worship, how we worship, the content and elements of worship. It's guided by Scripture alone. We saw in a passage like Deuteronomy what the elements are required for worship in the Old Testament. Well, does God have, does God care about worship elements in the New Testament? Are there worship elements in the New Testament or or are we kind of under a grace so whatever makes sense for that congregation in that place is okay? Well, we started in 1 Timothy 3 because we're returning here to it near the end. And here's my point. Just as God is concerned about the elements of worship in the New Testament, he's just as concerned about the elements of worship at Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's the argument the writer of Hebrews makes. You have not come to Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion. And if it was a fearful thing to fall into that living God's hands, how much more dangerous do you think it is to fall in God's hands now that we are here at Zion? I've written to you so that you might know how you order yourselves as the church. And when you read the New Testament, particularly the pastoral letters written to pastors about how churches should be, what you find is about six mandated reoccurring elements that make up the gather worship of his people. And if a church does these things, God promised to show up in power. Here are the following things. The public reading of the word, 1 Timothy 4. Devote yourself to the public reading of the word. The preaching of the word, 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word. The praying of the word, 1 Timothy 2. I'm commanding that prayers be made in your congregation for all kinds of people. The singing of the word, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. The regular observance of two and only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Do these things that I have commanded you. And the regular giving of the work, uh, to the work of the word. There you have it. Pastor Jared summarized it at the beginning. Those are six mandated elements that God says must be a regular part of your gathering. And we've summarized them like this for years. That means you read the Bible, you preach the Bible, you pray the Bible, you sing the Bible, you see the Bible, and you give to the work of the Bible. Do you hear how simple that is? Now that's important for a number of reasons. Let me take you for a moment down memory lane and then see how it applies. It allows, again, freedom and simplicity and authenticity, and they actually are transcendent of cultures and time. 
So when our church was getting started some 18 years ago, when any church starts, there's a lot of pressure and discussion on what you have to do and be like. What do you have to have to start? So coming from a large church like Heritage, who at the time had full of choirs and special music at every service and ministry programs for all kinds of kids and all kinds of ages and organized studies and nursery check-in systems for various groups and on and on. When you start up a church, the regulative principle then becomes precious and freeing and encouraging. Why? Now, listen to me, because few any of the things that we often think are required for a deep church experience, few of those things are actually required. If the power goes out in your service, you don't want the Holy Spirit to go with it. I'm not arguing against power. You understand that? But I'm trying to do a thought experiment to press this. Let me, could it be that some some reasons why people pick church, some reasons why people live church, leave church, are for things not even required in the Bible. You see how simple and freeing it is? Let me, let me give another example. I don't know if Brian remembers this. I had this little closet in Heritage and church is getting ready to start. And Brian and I look at each other with a moment of panic like, what do we, what do, we do? Brian has been so faithful. Thank you, brother. We've talked about many of these things. What do we do? What are we supposed to do? Do we have a choir? Do we tell them we're going to go out and work on special music? What are we supposed to do? We looked at each other and said, as long as we do what's commanded, this is greatly freeing and comforting. And these elements of worship are simple and they guarantee that God can be worshipped anywhere during any time period and any condition. And if you do these things in the gathering, you're a true church and God promises to show up in power when you gather. So our word is always trying to be governed, the, the, the worship by the word. We've always used this regulative principle to shape what we insist on. Well, what about a choir? What about special music or this ministry or that program? Well, listen, well, does God require those things for a church experience to be deep, for, for a worship service to be meaningful and intentional? What does he demand when his people gather? Many of the things I would put in the category of nice but not necessary, some of them might be forbidden or dangerously close to sinfully innovative. C.S. Lewis used to say, I go into a church and I can tell if a church's philosophy of worship is kind of novelty because I think, what tricks will they, t- will they teach next? What new trick will the dog of worship do next week? We cannot worship God however we please in a manner that makes us feel best. That kind of thinking can lead to viewing God as a gopher, that his job is to make me religiously excited. We believe that Christian worship fails sometimes, and I don't, unless I, I don't know, fun. You know how it is, um, especially with the blessing of churches in Greenville, that a church service and a church and life in a church week is like Starbucks. I like my drink at 175 degrees. I like it triple cupped with three pumps of vanilla. Can you make me another one? I said three. I think you gave me two. I need a stir and a lid. And that's how we kind of view these things. The reality is that God sets the terms and conditions of worship. We worship him as he prescribes. Now, let me add a little caveat. Some people think that sola scriptura means Nuda Scriptura, N-U-D-A. Sola Scriptura 
is the belief that God's word is the supreme final code of conduct and beliefs and, and opinions and creeds and confessions, the supreme and final. There's not an authority above the Bible or parallel to it as in the Catholic church or the Mormon church. There's no pope or, or there's no magisterium outside alongside the Bible. This, the scripture alone governs and judges creeds, conducts, and behaviors. Having said that, sola scriptura is not the same thing as nuda scriptura, N-U-D-A. Nuda scriptura was a belief that arose by the radical reformers who wanted to say, we, what we want is no creed but the Bible. We don't read anything but the Bible, and unless it's full of nothing but scripture explanation, don't give me a creed, give me the Bible. And that set the pathway to the radical reformation that shows up sometimes when people say, every time I sit down and read the Bible, I'm going to do so if I'm the first person who's ever read the Bible, and this is the first time I've ever read the Bible. That's new to scriptura, not sola scriptura. And while the reformers were on guard for sola scriptura, they never argued for nuda scriptura. And those led to movements like the Quakers who sat around thinking. And Roger Williams, who eventually at the end of his life was him and his wife in a room. Instead, I mean, Charles Spurgeon put it like, I know you can quote Spurgeon to prove anything. right? <laughs> but Spurgeon would put it like this. You who think a lot of what the Holy Spirit revealed to you when you read your Bible, why do you think so little what the Holy Spirit revealed to someone else when she read her Bible? It's not nuda scriptura, it's sola scriptura. Instead, while emphasizing then, here's how this works out, the, the elements of worship, the saints of the past have said they've given thought to forms and circumstances of worship that can be left up to the wisdom and prudence of the elders in the congregation. So preaching is a mandated element. It has to be there. But there may be other things, while not necessary, might be a form or an aid to a mandated element like preaching, like a microphone, like a pulpit. This is a form. This is an aid to a mandated element. The reason is that they argued there are things you can see in the light of nature based on common prudence that might be helpful to carry forth the elements of worship that might not be explicitly stated, but might be beneficial in carrying out the mandated elements. So we have elements of worship. Then we have forms or aids of worship that aid the worship. So, so, so how about this? What about instruments? And New Testament worship, there is no New Testament command that says new, there's no command in the New Testament that says instruments are required for worship. Think of, do this. Would you say that acapella music in the catacombs of Rome or in Ukraine with bombs dropping because they had no instruments that their worship was not deeply spiritual and pleasing to God? You see what happens when you ask this question? What has to be there for worship to be true and essential and God-glorifying? And this is freeing. But having said that instruments may not be required to be for worship, could instruments be a form, an aid for worship that supports the mandated element of congregational singing? And if instruments are an aid, not an element, we ought to be careful to ensure that instruments support the congregational singing and not cover it up. Nearly everybody who visits Emmanuel, even Mark Devine, who was just here, every guest speaker who comes who's not from Greenville says the first thing they almost always say when they sit down for lunch, your congregation loves to sing and I can hear them. That's a mandated element of worship being supported by a form, an aid. 
you could do this thought experiment with many things, a printed order of worship. But here are the questions then that we check our hearts with. Are we insisting on demanding a form or aid? And are we pushing it to a level of element? Be careful of idolatry. At the same time, can a form of worship and aid help carry out a mandated element? Be wise and discerning. So we have elements of worship explicitly commanded. And then by the light of nature and prudence, we think about forms of worship, things that are not required but might help carry out what's required. And then there are circumstances of worship. Worship has to take place in some context. There's elements and forms or aids. And certain. What time do you meet? Where do you meet? Do you use chairs? Do you use pews? What about coffee and tea? What about a check-in system? What about parking and so on? Those are all circumstances of worship, not elements of worship. Elements, forms, circumstances. And circumstances are even... uh, Circumstances like forms of worship are not elements and they're left up to the prudence of a congregation and elders. But just as many people with forms of worship, many congregants and congregations can evaluate churches and their ministries and philosophy by the forms and circumstances of worship more than the mandated elements of worship. And this is dangerously close, not always, to idolatry and breaking at least the first four commandments. So there you have the philosophy of worship at Emmanuel Bible Church that we've had since day one that Brian and I hashed out. And not too long ago, Brian preached the message on, on corporate worship. Fantastic. We're trying to get it printed up and put it in the bookstall. So I'm thankful for Brian's life and, and influence. What we're trying to do is simply let God's word humbly guide our corporate gathering, our ministry. That means the regulative principle. It's in accord with God's word. We have to insist on what God's word insists on. So that our church life can remain simple and intentional, including insisting upon only those things clearly revealed in his word so that we can give God the glory to his name. What's the worship philosophy? What's the ministry philosophy? It's simple and intentional. It's mere and enhancing. Mere meaning simple, enhancing meaning enhancing the commands. What freedom, and I want to say what joy and what simplicity. If I as a pastor tied, I don't mean not being aware, but tied my my final gravitational center, then every few years a new book would come out on church philosophy. And it is the egg good or bad? Well, depending on what decade you're in, right? Well, and if you stop and think... This philosophy of worship, this principle is is not only how we apply to worship, but it's it's our philosophy of ministry, of church structures and the like. So some find some find the regular principle too lax. It's it's too stuffy. It's it's too organized. It's not free enough. It's too free. It's too organic. It's too little. It's too much. Well, maybe that helps you know why we're trying to do what we're doing here. We're simply trying to let our worship be governed and our ministry philosophy by the Bible. I have written a note here and I don't know what it says. That's fine. Now, in the end, both in worship and philosophy, we're striving as a congregation and as elders, Psalm 29.2, to give God the glory due his name. We want to behave in a way that he orders. This doesn't mean all of our applications are right. It doesn't mean they're the only ones that can be made. It doesn't mean that others are absolutely wrong. 
It's what we're trying to do here, best we do humbly before God's word, that the way we seek to worship God, it may not draw an audience. It may not do appeal to a lot of people at every point. But our target audience, I know what you want is what we want. Our target audience is only one. The worship of the redeemed to the redeemer about the redemption and humble submission to his word and worship in the way he prescribes is the way all of history is moving. And by God's grace, it's where we want to move to. Hugh's old. He taught up the road for a while at Erskine Seminary. He's now with the Lord. Several years ago, he wrote a book called Worship That's Reformed According to Scripture. And here's his quote towards the end of his book. I think it's towards the end. He says, so worship services and philosophy of ministry and church like this may not be just exactly what everyone's looking for. In our evangelistic zeal, we're looking for programs that will attract or the like. We think we have to put honey on the lip of the bitter cup of salvation. It's the story of the wedding of Cana all over again, but with this difference. At the crucial moment when the wine failed, we took matters into our own hands and we used those five stone jars to mix up a batch of Kool-Aid instead. It seemed like a good solution in terms of our American culture. Unfortunately, all too soon, the guests discovered the fraud. Alas, what are we to do now? How can we possibly minister to those who thirst for the real thing? There's but one thing to do, as Mary, the mother of Jesus, understood so very well. Remember how the story goes? After presenting the problem to Jesus, Mary turned to the servants and simply said to them, do whatever he tells you. The servants did just that, and the water was turned to wine. Rich wine. Mellow beyond anything they had ever tasted before because they simply did what he told them to do. May God help us by his spirit to regulate our lives and our worship better and better by his word. Do whatever he tells you when you gather Emmanuel Bible Church and you'll have the rich wine of salvation.